0: Welcome to the Azure podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji Damello, Kendall Rodin, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at Azure Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Azure Podcast. Um, this is episode number 467. Uh, we have Brian Berry, um, our special guest back today to talk about, what, you know, he talked to us a, a month or so back about sort of OneStream's journey to Azure. Now we're going to talk about um, sort of what OneStream looks like in the future on Azure, sort of, you know, what their architecture and, and a cloud-native role looks like. Um, joined by Sajit Damello, we're recording this on uh, July 11th, um, and this is episode number 467. Um, so, S- Sajit, looks like you put some notes out there. What do you want to talk about today?
1: Yeah, a couple of quick ones here. Uh, one which caught me by surprise I didn't realize we were rename, renaming Azure AD, uh, but it is now Microsoft Intra ID. Not, not a fan of the name, but it is what it is, <laughs> Intra ID. Uh, <laughs> Uh, M E I D. I don't know how they're going to shorten that. I, I have no idea. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, but it's um, Microsoft Entra E N T R A Entra ID. So that's a new name. Everything else remains the same. It's just a name change. So uh, I guess we'll just have to get used to calling it that uh, in future because we're so used to calling it AD. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so that yep. that's one. And the other one was an update uh, for um, Azure Monitor logs, being able to ingest uh, logs directly from. Uh, event hubs, right? And this is a very common use case. A lot of uh, companies, and I've done this in the past uh, with other customers, where we just, you know, dumped a lot of uh, telemetry we used to get from routers and everything, put them into an event log, uh, event um, event hub. I mean, and then you, had to, you had to write something, take them and put them into like uh, yeah. Azure Monitor logs or Log Analytics or whatever. Now that's automatic and just point to and it'll just. You know, take all the logs, all the entries from Event Hub, and put them into the logs directly. Uh, this way, you don't have to write any special code for that.
0: Nice. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. along the along the same lines, one of the ones that I wanted to point out was, and I actually didn't know you could do this at all with um, uh, Azure Data Explorer. So, I, it, but it's actually really cool. So you can now it they call them external tables, but you can basically create a table in Azure Data Explorer that is pointing to SQL Server. Um, and that's been around for a little while, and we've added Postgres, SQL, MySQL, and Cosmos. And obviously, you can't, uh, you know, change the data and do inserts and like you could if you were using the relational side of this. But you can run queries against it just like it's a data explorer table, right? It's sort of the old uh, uh, linked server construct from from the on-premises SQL Server world. Um, but I thought that was really cool. Um, definitely, there's lots of data that doesn't all live in in data explorer, right? It's nice to be able to access it. Um, The other two uh, sort of networking related, the first is the um, cross-region load balancer is generally available. So this, you know, historically you've had to say, hey, I've got a load balancer in region A and all my resources are in region A as well. Now you can put your load balancer wherever you want and you can direct it to resources wherever you want globally. So you have a lot more flexibility there. Sort of starts getting into the traffic manager world a little bit, right? Conceptually, but, but, you know, gives you a lot of flexibility. And then the other one, and I I sort of laughed at this one because I remember early, early on, you know, people were asking for this and it's, it's sort of in some ways tells, you know, we're sort of going back to the on premises um, capabilities, but um, Azure Virtual Network Encryption is now available, right? So, so all the traffic is encapsulated, it's all, um, you know, not really easily visible at the infrastructure layer, but theoretically, if you get a network capture inside the data center, right, you could you could undo the de encapsulation and you could see what's in there. Um, now customers can actually encrypt traffic between VM to VM traffic within a within a vnet at that point, point. Um, and so or I'm sorry, basically it'd be all the traffic for the VMs in that vnet. Um, and again, that's you know adding on TLS on top of all the encapsulation and all of the compartmentalization that we do from all that traffic. So again, you know, isn't something everybody needs for sure. Um, you know, but it's definitely if you're running super sensitive workloads where, you know, just like you have encryption at rest, you know, type things, right? This
2: is a, a feature you're going to probably want to take advantage of. That's interesting. Mind if I ask a question about that? Like, how, how does that vary? Like, if you were using TLS already on your own workloads, is that really? Yeah, how I was different? wondering yeah, about it, the same it, thing. It,
0: so it's. Not if you're using TLS, right, in your workload, but you think about there's there's a lot of communications these days that are still done in the clear, right? And and the problem with doing TLS, right, is you basically, the, the server and the client have to support, the protocol has to support it natively. And, you know, sometimes you have to make code changes to make it work, Um, you know, but this way, theoretically, you could take code that doesn't have it and you just turn it on the VNet and everything would be um, encrypted at that point. Again, it, it won't really see it, you know, from the VM's perspective, it won't look like it's encrypted, right? But if I look at it, it's it basically gets, it's going to get encrypted as you go down the virtual stack, right? But if I was to take, you know, again, a network trace in the data center,
2: I, it's just encrypted traffic so at the top of the encapsulation stack. That actually create some interesting scenarios because one thing that really comes to mind and actually it's a problem even for us is when you think about uh you know the needing wild card certs for doing tls yep. and then yep. you know it gets you know, invariably you know you have load balancers that tend to offload complicated. that yep. yep you end up with this like these small segments that traffic is unencrypted and this yep. seems like a checkbox that could solve yeah. that
0: I I think that's the vision for this right you know we yeah. we had customers as they were coming on sort of saying hey you know, again, this is why I sort of reference the the encryption at rest, yeah. you know, thought process, which is there's customers say, yeah, I get it, Microsoft, you know, nobody can touch these things, you know, you're only have to, you know, access stuff within certain, you know, scenarios, and the data itself is in, is encrypted in, you know, sort of when you're using it, but, um, you know, there there are all kinds of regulatory worlds where this stuff needs to be encrypted six ways to Sunday, and this is just another layer that you can add on top of that, um, or or maybe simplify your infrastructure. Right from your configuration, your management part, like right? managing wildcard certificates is not easy if you're not familiar with it. It's not something you're used to. Now you can say, hey, I just turn it on and it's encrypted and I don't have to manage the certificates. If you don't, you know, absolutely need it based on the protocol. Interesting. Yeah. Neat. Um, so cool. Um, so so with that, so so Ryan, you sort of jumped in there, but let's if you would, um, you know, reintroduce yourself because some people may not have caught the previous episode and tell us who OneStream is and what you do at, at OneStream.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Ryan Berry, uh, senior vice president of architecture, and uh, you know, basically, what my my team is responsible for. I've got multiple factions of teams. Uh, I've got one that owns all of our, our DevOps operations and our engineering organization, uh, but my primary architecture team is focused on on uh, on exploring ways to use and leverage and capitalize on. Cloud native capabilities that we can incorporate into our platform to be able to light up additional features more quickly than we would have otherwise had to, uh, you know, incur engineering time to to build ourselves uh, to, to, to delight our customers. And what, who are our customers? Um, we're in a financial corporate consolidation uh, space. So, so um, you know, a good way to think about that is to um, you know, think, you know, the largest of, of the the uh, you know, the publicly traded organizations when it comes to them needing to report their earnings uh, to Wall Street, you know, they need tooling like us to be able to take all of their their consolidated financial or to produce their consolidated financial statements. Uh, and, and that involves, you know, taking data from a plethora of systems and think about all the complexities when it comes to downstream subsidiaries yeah. that are partially owned, all, all of those complexities that, and nuances that the, the office of CFO has to deal with, our platform can help a customer facilitate that.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, and, and, and the reason, you know, we had you on to talk earlier about sort of, you know, your journey to the cloud, um, but I think, you know, you, you, I think you mentioned this in the show, you definitely mentioned this to, to me when you and I were talking, but mm-hmm. your architecture functionally is an on-premises architecture that you've brought to Azure. You've made some updates and some modifications yeah. for it, but it still is mostly sort of that on-premises architecture, a lift and shift type mm-hmm. approach, but, you know, that's not where you're going to stay. Down yes. the road, and that absolutely, you know, to your point, slows you down. What do, What are y'all looking at? Is this Are you looking at, you know, containers? Are you looking at app services? Like, what 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 services are you all looking yeah. at leveraging?
2: Yeah. So, uh, excellent question. And our Our workload is uh, needs a lot of, of computational power and RAM. And why that's significant and noteworthy is that the services like App services are you know, were kind of precluded from being able to make take advantage of some of those at scale with or or in a multi-tenancy manner right. because you know you th- think of the you know a typical you know, some of our larger customers have VMs that are you know 32 cores you know half a terabyte plus of, of RAM yeah,
0: these are big
1: yeah yeah big. yeah
2: so so that that kind of starts excluding a lot of cloud services for that are more commoditized for. You know, micro service type level interactions. Um, so that that is a constraining artifact of of how we, um, you know, what, what our software needs today. Uh, so as such, you know, we're exploring a couple of different options. And and you know, and, and I say a couple because it's it's gonna, you know, we're gonna have kind of a a phase one. You um, know, today we we use a lot of you know IaaS infrastructure, but then you know, how can we improve upon that? And, um, you know, one thing that we can do, and, you know, obviously we have a lot of automation in place to produce mm-hmm. and build and, and deploy those VMs. However, when it comes to patching them, we need yeah, we to have about automation that last time in place non-trivial. to be able to yeah. facilitate that. So how can we improve that? And actually, you know, this has been a long-standing capability of Azure. We just haven't been able to capitalize on it as, you know, VM scale sets. In in having you know the engineering organization produce an image that can then be consumed in you know by our operations team to um that contains all the artifacts needed to make our software function uh and then uh you know makes for a very easy vehicle for our operations team to deploy uh that new version of product to a customer and i think i mentioned this previously that we have an interesting nuance that, that because of the business that we're in um, you know as a saAS provider we're unique in that we actually have to version our platform because you know it's auditors who come in and uh, you know, and you know evaluate the earnings that a company reports and it has to be it has to correspond to you know some traceable version of a platform used to produce those numbers so that kind of makes things a little bit challenging for us in a typical saAS provider that we, we do actually have a version so, um, so the idea is that we can actually use you know, VM Scale Sets to be able to ship a a uh, an image. But then, you know, how does that work going forward? You know, our our, our go forward vision is to make use of more, uh, you know, container container based solutions. You know, a lot in actual Container Services, in um, in Kubernetes. So this. This uh, you know use of VM scale set images is, is is a sort of a training wheels opportunity for the engineering and, and DevOps organization to produce artifacts that are then handed over to our operations team. And that same sort of thing will happen in the Kubernetes world. It just won't be a VM you know heavy-handed VM image. It's just going to be a container image. Um, so it's 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 a, a way to be able to prog- progress towards uh, you know a, a more uh s- succinct and, and and concise deployment modality for, for a platform.
0: And very DevOps friendly at the end of the day yeah. as well, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah you know, uh it, Ryan, any time you, you take like something that's a monolith and try to break it down, it's always a challenge, especially if you're a running production system, is uh, you know, do you uh you break it down a little bit at a time and keep the keep the system running? In other words, you know, you you abstract out pieces at a time but keep it running. Or do you just, you know, wait for the entire thing to be deconstructed and then move over to the new platform? I was wondering, like, what kind of approach you're taking there?
2: And that's a really good good question. And because, you know, we have a, a complicated piece of software that has a lot of uh, innovations over, you know, well over a decade of time, um, it, it's it's uh, you, we we can't we can't start over like it's That would be such a long, <laughs> such a, a, a gigantic project. Um, you know that it would take years to, to deliver on that so we have to you know perform while we transform so to speak um so you know th- they're um, in having a, a you know platform that that has grown organically uh you know to the level of complexity is that today you know we've we've taken advantage of you know ride' still on top of donedem framework so just using that as a simple talking point um it, it it's a uh, Herculean effort just to get to a point where we could run in .NET core to get away from from you know Windows operating system and have a smaller container image. So so we're looking at the, at at those types of vectors about what can, can we do to kind of modernize some of the the underpinnings. Um, and then you know as we advance forward, you know that we we could start looking at you know how can we you know start peeling out services that. Um, uh, that might be beneficial to our customers as well as us to peel out, you know, maybe things that could be shared in a multi-tenancy fashion that can be, you know, scaled up, independent of, of you know, a customer environment, um, you know, allowing customers to benefit from per added for perfor- added performance as well as us to be able to benefit from, uh, you know, simpler deployment, uh, you know, models. But but today, you know, we kind of have to deal with these constraining guidelines that our customers have imposed on us and, and uh, quite honestly the financial you know regulations have imposed upon us that um you know where we have these you know isolated environments and um so so with that lens we're just trying to optimize for using newer technologies that are easier and more quickly to or, or, or more uh, able to take advantage of uh, you know Linux environments and kubernetes and that sort of thing and, and then we're kind of we'll, we'll evaluate things as we go along from there but that's that's the approach we're taking
0: it's always hard when you have an existing one, right because you can't you you are never going to have full parity yeah. right between old and new so so the application side that you were talking about right sort of the the maybe the middle tier or or i don't know these days we won't really talk about three tier architecture but but the non database stuff right yeah. like it's it's generally pretty easy to start carving out you know an api here or an api there right and and moving that over to containers what um what are you able what are you thinking about on the database side because because y'all do a bunch of processing in the database, like the database itself is a heavy part of that computational piece. Absolutely. And, and and it's databases are memory and and storage and compute hungry, right? They will take as much as you give them. So what kind of ideas are you sort of, you know, talking through as options there?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, I mean, it's, it's really no surprise, you know, the industry talks about this all over but you know, there's just this explosive element of data growth when, and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, Companies and our customers alike are are wanting to do more, you know, with, and make more sense of that data, be able to have more informed, make it better and more informed decisions from that data. So I essentially want to retain it, which kind of causes a compounding yep. problem when you start asking a lot for like a traditional relational store. So, you know, what that means for us is that, you know, we're exploring other uh, storage modalities. And, okay. and I say other because. It might not be just one. Actually, it yep. most likely will not be just one. Um, you know, maybe the Azure Data Explorer makes sense for a subset of data that, um, you know, that that customers are 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 using in a feature of our product. Uh, you know, maybe we could just simply use Blob Storage for, you know, with with Parquet files for another another area. So that's, you know, they, these are the types of realities that, that we're working in, and we're also. You know, AI is is a very hot topic in in the industry, and we're trying to be cognizant and aware of decisions we make on on storage platforms and what sorts of capabilities can be layered on top of that to be able to right. have allow our customers to ask questions of that data. Um, you know, so so those are some driving factors behind um, you know thinking about what sort of services we use. And then there's another element of I don't want to say concern, but but a consideration maybe would be a better way to phrase it. And, and you have, uh, and, and that, you know, obviously all these, uh, any cloud service has a, a cost element to it. And when, you know, if you, you know, today a relational store is, is pretty easy to deploy in a per customer uh, um, deployment modality. But, you know, some of these other services aren't really well suited for being able to accommodate that. So you have to think about, you know, the security implications, cost implications about, you know, having a multi-tenant approach for some of those services. So that's a really big factor that we have to kind of consider as well. Um, and then a the whole litany of things that go along with that when it comes to DR and and HA. You know, like ADX is a good example. Like, how how do you, uh, you know, what's the DR story for that to be able to you know copy that data into another region and and make it available should it be So so those are all considering factors. But but the, the short of uh, to kind of be succinct and direct to the question you asked is that you know, very much, I, I think that in a cloud or SaaS world that, you know, I, I'm a firm believer of a poly- polyglot type architecture, where we yep. have lots of different storage in, you know, uh, modalities, depending on the type nature of data.
0: So so I suspect, that, you know, not necessarily saying that, that y'all are going to go this way, but, yeah. um, you know, products like the new Microsoft Fabric that we announced, right, where it's using Parquet as the base yep. format across multiple, you know, services, I think, like, um, you know synapse and all the other surfaces going to be able to you know sort of treat parquet as a standard common format like you're probably going to be in that kind of thinking that Correct. kind of world right
2: yeah yeah absolutely yeah but we we we've been paying attention to some of those announcements um uh, and and uh, you know very much plugged in with our microsoft team and, and understanding the impact and, and implications they have and some of the decisions we're making um but so so yeah so those those are very interesting to us you know when it comes to <laughs> the shared compute that kind of yep. exists behind some of those services and and um uh, and actually quite honestly making it simpler for for companies yep. like us to be able to consume those services from a, a a compute standpoint
0: yeah because i was thinking about that as you were talking about a poly- polyglot world right that the upside to the polyglot world is your data can sit where it's going to sit and you can sort of consume different data formats the downside is you you have to manage that and, yeah. you know and and you have to you know configure it set it up make sure it's performant and and at some level although there there are definitely downsides to you know one big massive you know SQL server engine somewhere there's upsides to it in terms of you only have that to manage right you don't have all these different pieces you're going to pick up all these different pieces um how, how does it, you know you were mentioning earlier that part one of the areas that you have accountability for is the devops part of of, of your infrastructure um devops and containers Go ha- like those things are super tightly wedded. Is some of what you're looking at the evolution of what you can do with DevOps by moving to that world? I mean, does ab- app- app- DevOps work with IaaS? It just yeah, it's not as clean and crisp as as it is yeah. when with containers.
2: No, I, I, absolutely. And and you are spot on. There there's um you know some you know being you know h- historically having roots in the on premises world. You have installers and yeah. such that that our engineering team is used to producing and and testing validating So, um, and, and you know, we'll, we'll continue to do so for for you know some some time. But we'll, why that's interesting and worth mentioning on the DevOps side is that you know the, historically it's just been a matter of having build automation that can produce those artifacts and then they get handed over to somebody else that and that somebody else is and you know has the special keys of the kingdom and can provision images in the production world and such. Um, so the lines tend to start blurring when you yeah. start. Modernizing, and um, you know, I mentioned you know the the training wheels of of using VM scale sets, like as a as a, a very real uh, um, you know scenario in which we're trying to we're, we're, with the lines are blurring between the engineering organization delivering uh, you know binaries and, and innovations our customers are 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 leveraging, and then the team that's responsible for owning and managing maintaining operating that, um, and, and that's a good way to kind of hand that off is, is that you know no longer in, you know, for those cloud customers, we wouldn't be producing an installer artifact. We'd be pre- producing an image artifact, yeah. And, yeah. and that image is going to be, you know, tuned and and hardened by the engineering organization. And then, you know, the, the operations team is going to take that and, and run with it. So, um, in the same holds true for in the Kubernetes world. So, so there's a level of of um, um, you know, integration I think that needs to happen for things for organizations to be successful in in crossing that that castle.
0: Yeah, it's it's you know it's 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 like a lot of the stuff that we you know we see in application modernization. The the hill to climb is not easy at times, right? It is it is no question an engineering and a technical challenge to go from you know a monolithic IaaS based lift and shift architecture to a modern one. But the payoff is there when you mm-hmm. when you get there, and so it's generally yeah. worth that climb. But but it it does it does take time to get there, and and I suspect your team is you know uh, is sort of you know uh, you know on that climb and and some days are better than others and and some lessons are sort of learned the hard way um are there are 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 there lessons that you would sort of impart to somebody who's getting ready to start that journey that you say hey don't we did this thing and and like you know don't ever do this this was we 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 shouldn't have you know jumped that far to start with or something any any good sort of back lessons
2: yeah so so i I mean I covered a little bit of them and and I think it's a good maybe worth double clicking on it because i I think that had we uh thrown out everything and started all over you know yeah, yeah that might have been um you know maybe the the architecturally correct thing to do that will look really clean on a whiteboard but um <laughs> but but it it would have been an impossibility you know for a high growth startup to yeah. survive. Um, doing that in parallel while innovating on, on an existing code base and how do you tie yeah, the you two together you basically
0: double your double your code base Yeah,
2: exactly there. so so um I, I think you know from from my point of view the the, the crawl walk run approach is is important and you know you know i i know now use example and and i i you know certainly understand you know vm scale sets have been around a long time and and feel embarrassed of, you know that you know that wasn't something we weren't able to take Advantage of just because of how we yep. did things yep. previously, but using that as like a simple talking point, like that that you know, we realize that that's very similar construct to what our our next stage is, and yeah, and that's a step an easy stepping stone that we could actually go, you know, that we that we could use to cross the bridge. um There's some other interesting things that that have emerged um with regards to you know. Get, because when you when you make the you know VM scale sets is still largely IaaS you still largely can have per customer environments but then mm-hmm. when you go to Kubernetes the there's a big paradigm shift into you know even if you have per customer containers or pods you still have multi tenancy on the infrastructure and at that's sort of the cluster level right yeah at exactly yeah. So, that becomes really interesting on the observability layer. So when it comes to monitoring uh, and it has impl- implications on support in our oper- yep. uh you know, procedures we have in place to be able to inhibit support and operations, access to customer environments. Um, you know, there has to be some material changes to some of those things and how they um, you know, we still have to obviously, you know, lock down the actual data from any, you know, bad potential bad actor. But, but the ways you do, the way you do so is very different, and and particularly the observability frame or lens becomes much different when you're not looking at it per customer. Um, when you're looking at it, you know, from all, all up, which actually is going to be a huge benefit, quite frankly, with our operations team, and, and because they can see everything all at once. But it's also going to be um we have to make sure we we go about that correctly and that that you know we're you know things that you know prior that we're in, uh, adhering and abiding to by our privacy policies and things you know that we have in place to govern or that we promise to our customers and, and we and that's a a difficult that's a challenging journey you know it's yeah. easy to say oh yeah. just you know install xyz thing and and you can watch it. yeah you can do that but you know there's some you know what a, you know what about you know if uh now, I'll use a simple example. So, um, you know, the GDPR is, yep. is uh, you know, uh, important and relevant to any global company. So, what if you capture error messages and, and um, you know, from from uh, a SaaS platform, you know, that's relatively benign. What if set error message is an exception about you logging in? Now we have yeah. Beth, like you know, with your email yeah. address in it. And that's an accidental data exposure. Like yeah. what, what happens then? Like how, how yep. do you treat, and, and you have all these things like that that you have to kind of tease out. Um and, and uh, you know sometimes you have to pump the brakes a little bit and and which is you know you can't move as maybe fast as you'd like to move because of of, of some of those constraints. Yep. But yep. those are all real problems you have to address before you just jump into that new that new cloud world. I, I feel like you're
0: probably going to be uh, end up being on a journey that some of our internal teams here at Microsoft have, have been on, which is um, they they end up going the um, what do we call it? We call it the multi-tenant code on single-tenant infrastructure, right? right. So where so you're basically running this, you know, so you sort of, you start IaaS and then you refactor your code, refactor your code. Okay, now the code can do multi-tenant, but you're not quite ready to run in a shared environment. And so, you know, because you still haven't figured out some of your data privacy things, some of the logging things you got to figure yeah. out. And but you're but you're sort of getting there in stages, right? Rather than having to make that big jump. Like it feels like y'all probably be somewhere along that journey at some
2: point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I I, uh, I think you're you're spot on. You're, you're, those are all considering factors as we 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 start looking into the future and kind of what um you know what things, if at all, we want to support on prem and kind of de- making those sorts of decision. Yep. Factors which oh that's right uh,
0: yeah because you can't you can't walk away from your on-premises business either so yeah, you still need to get yeah, that exactly. yeah
2: it's a good point yeah so, so we have to kind of make you know some decisions at some point about kind of what what that looks like and i mentioned you all know, all the data storage capabilities you know there might be things that just might be excluded from you know some of those types of customers and and you know at some point there might need to you know other decisions might need to be made but um um you know but those are all all you know from an engineering standpoint all things we have to kind of take into account when we're putting pen to paper on, you know, what, what is, what is this thing going to do? What is the future of said thing? What is the future of customers, you know, using said thing? Uh, Where are they going to sit? And all all of those are factors we have to kind of take into account. Um, And then also to your point, like, how are we going to deploy this thing? Like, is this going to be shared? Is this going to be, you know, is is this a a capability that has to remain isolated because of, you know, the nature of our business and and we have so yeah.
0: I, I feel like I feel like listening to you talk that I could just sort of pencil you in about once a year, you know, every year <laughs> for the next five years, and, yeah. and you show back up. Oh, okay, we, we, you know, we made this piece. You know, we managed to make it sort of cloud yeah, you native know, exactly. and everything else. Um, no, this this is great. I mean, this is a great, uh, you know, great to sort of hear the the customer side of this story, right? Because on the Microsoft side, we're able to oh, just 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 go do it. And, and again, I say that with yeah. a little bit a little bit tongue in cheek because yeah. you know we don't. We know it, that the reality is not always as easy as sort of the marketing. But, you know, it, it's really easy to say, oh, just go cloud native, go to containers. But the reality is you have a business that yeah. you have to run. You have to make money. Um, you have to pay people's paychecks, right? Like you have to have that. Um, so any last thoughts that you want to leave it, leave the audience with?
2: No, I, I think, you know, that, that um, uh, you know, there, there's a, a lot. One thing that always comes up is. In, in conversations as we're exploring new capabilities, the whole adage of build versus buy. And I, and I think yeah. the one thing that would be important considering factors, particularly at, in the, you know, I mentioned AI just briefly and just using that as like a, a launch pad, like that's, you know, services like that, um, you, you know, that there are innovations that, that you Microsoft are making that would be an impossibility for us to achieve with, um, you know, with the size engineering organization we have. So we have to really, um, you know, before we go out building something, we do a lot of uh, soul searching about what what sort of exists already. What's in the, core to your business? And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, and try to make use of of those capabilities first. Um, you know, if, if we can, before we start venturing down a path of building our own.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's actually really great advice. I, I know, you know, on on the Microsoft side, we're a little bit biased towards build versus mm-hmm. buy because that is what we do, you know, for a living as we build the platforms underneath. But but you're right. I've seen a lot of customers make the mistake of building something that's not really their core business. And it ends up taking yeah. a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it maybe isn't as good as and have some of the features that some of the other stuff does. So, no, that's a great point uh, for people yeah. to think about as they go through. Um, well, Ryan, again, I'm um, always great to to have you on. Um, you know, like I said, I'm going to pencil you in about once a year. <laughs> right. no, that'd be great. Um, you, um, be you know, yeah. and, and you can you can continue to update, uh, update yeah. us on the journey. Um, as always, thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.